0: Hey friends, this is David from The Brilliance. I hope that you're doing well in this crazy COVID year. We have lots of new music that we released this year. Uh, In the beginning of the year, we released our second suite, World Keeps Spinning, and then we released an EP off of that suite. We've released some singles, and we're about to release some brand new music on Friday, November 6th. Today, I'm excited to share with you a brand new podcast that I am hosting and producing Called Undaunted. This podcast is about radical peacemakers and dives into their story. I hope that you'll check it out on this feed and then subscribe on iTunes as well as Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review and also check out that new music that's going to be coming out soon. So, with that, we love you. We miss playing shows. I hope that you'll enjoy this podcast and I hope that you'll stay curious. Hello, and welcome to Undaunted. My name is David Gunger. This is a podcast about radical peacemakers. And today we have one of my favorites. I first met Robbie Damlin when I was in Israel and Palestine on a Telos trip. Near the end of the trip, we went to Tel Aviv and we met with Robbie. And honestly, it felt life changing. She was so inspiring. This conversation is going to be broken up into two podcasts. Robbie recently joined me while she was in New York City speaking at an event. And I asked Robbie, what is she doing on the other side of the world?
1: Well, this is a question that I ask myself all the time. (laughs) What am I doing? You know, if you would have told me like 20 years ago that this is what my life would look like, I would have said you were crazy. You know, I know that I was given a kind of a gift for which I'm very grateful now of being able to get to people's hearts. I didn't ever realize, I mean, it's not that I was some little mouse before David was killed, my son, by a Palestinian sniper, but I never realized that I would be able to take this into the world and to make a difference and to suddenly understand maybe only three years ago how grateful I am for my life. How weird does that sound? You know, people keep saying to me, they look at me as sconce because how can it be that she lost a child, which is the worst thing that can happen to anybody and the most painful thing, and yet now she's grateful for her life But imagine the choices that you make, because when David was killed, I could have decided to go on a path of revenge, or I could have decided to build libraries, or to sit at home and die with my child and do nothing. Many parents, that's what they do. Their lives come to an end, not physically, but they just stay at home and they do nothing. And others find going to the cemetery and looking after the garden, as a kind of extension of motherhood. But for me, I knew almost immediately that I wanted to do something to prevent other mothers, mainly mothers. I think my connection with mothers is so deep. I wanted to prevent that pain. And I didn't care where they came from or what color they were or what subtle prejudices I had before. I knew that every mother shares the same pain When she loses a child and that that was what I wanted to do with my life but I didn't know how and so it's extraordinary that I found this speech I knew that I wanted to do something and then I found a speech the first speech that I ever wrote and I wrote it mainly because I wanted to have it translated into really good Hebrew because it was going to be at a demonstration in Tel Aviv to get out of the occupied territories. This must have been three months after David was killed. I don't know where I got the courage from because there was something like 60,000 people there. And I remember I woke up in the morning and I wrote this speech and and a good friend translated it into good Hebrew. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, this was predicting exactly what I was gonna be doing for the rest of my life probably. And in it, I said who David was, but I also said that we needed a partner and that we couldn't do it alone and that the pain was the same pain for both sides. And things that I'm saying to this very day, maybe in a little more sophisticated way, but I knew innately what I was going to do. I just didn't have the framework yet. So after that demonstration, a religious Jewish man came to see me. And his name was Itzhak Frankentor. And he was the founder of this whole organization called the Parent Circle Families Forum. He'd read a lot of stuff that I'd said in the newspapers when David was killed. And I spoke about the children of settlers saying that I thought they were abused because you can't put your children in such a dangerous situation and not expect that they would be abused and actually, if you look at what I said at the next generations of settlers, each generation becomes more violent than the last one. He invited me to come to a weekend in East Jerusalem to meet with Palestinian and Israeli bereaved families and I must say that I was not very keen, I had no idea that those were the people that would really understand that if I wanted to cry or I wanted to drink half a bottle of whiskey or whatever I wanted to do would be acceptable because there was no judging. Many times in Israel, being bereaved, you become public property and people expect a certain, you know, you're given a certain respect and they expect to get back. And I don't do ceremonies very well, it's not for me. In any event, I don't know how he persuaded me to go because he's really even a bigger bulldozer than I am. I always say that. And I went to this weekend and I met Palestinian mothers and I realized that we shared the same pain. But I also realized that if we could speak in the same voice for non-violence and reconciliation, that we could be the most incredible force because if we could do it then surely that would be an example to other people so i started travel all over the world and i thought i was really very important and spoke in congress and the house of lords and in hip-hop concerts you name it i've traveled most of the world now you asked me what i'm doing here so i was first in washington because your remarkable uh, president, in his great wisdom, decided to cut off all cross-border activity funding, that is between Palestinians and Israelis, in Israel and Palestine, which doesn't only affect our organization, the Parent Circle, but it also affects hospitals and schools and the lives of UNRWA. And it is really a horrific decision because it's based on absolute ignorance of a culture. You cannot bring a nation to its knees and imagine, you know, that they're gonna make peace.
0: Robbie, have you always been so resilient?
1: So, if I go back to discovering where is the survivor and where is the victim, I think the survivor's been in me for a very long time because when I was a very small child, I was looking for the first act of social justice and just by the way, I think that the people who are listening to this, if it gives them any kind of challenge, should understand why they're actually listening to this. It must be that there's some act of social justice that is within them and if they look back to find out when it started, they would be very surprised. Because I looked back to find out where my first act was and I was five. I love animals and so the guy who used to deliver the milk with a horse and cart to our house used to beat his horse and I couldn't bear that. So I took my friend Barbara Fudge. I remember her name even after all these names, after all these years. And we went to the dairy and we stole the horse with carrots and we brought it home to our house in Johannesburg, and we put it in the tennis court. And my father came home, and you can imagine how thrilled he was to find a horse in the tennis court. And very shortly after that, I was sent to boarding school. But that's the beginning, there's the survivor, the one who does an act of social justice, who gets sent to boarding school, and is so naughty at the boarding school that they get sent to a convent, being like two Jewish children in a whole convent. So here's the beginning of a life of a survivor, or I could have been a victim and become a real misery. Yes, it's a choice. So I came to Israel and got married and had two boys. And I remember sitting on the couch with my two little boys and looking at the television and seeing Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt coming to Israel for the per- first peace talks. And I remember him standing at the entrance of the plane and crying like a small child because I thought my children won't have to go to the army. So that's also part of you know of who they were. My kids were very liberal in their outlook and, and David and Iran. But of course they had to go to the army like all other kids in Israel. And I remember saying goodbye to Iran, who's the oldest, when he was standing, standing at the bus stop and looking at my child and thinking, how can it possibly be that my child will carry a gun? That's not, I can't imagine that I would have a child with a gun. And then one year and a half after that, uh, there was only a year and a half difference between Iran and David. David had to go to the army and both of them were in the army together and you know they were very tall like in American standard 6 foot four and they had enormous feet. So they used to take off their boots and the whole house was filled with the perfume of army boots for the whole weekend. And I remember one Saturday they were both home. And we were having lunch, and there was a lot of wine. And suddenly these two very tall kids started to talk, because they didn't tell me what they did and how they felt about the army. And it was in the time of the second uprising in the Intifada, and suddenly two huge kids starting to cry and to say how difficult it was. Both of them finished the army and one went to India and the other to South America, which is very popular in Israel now, well, for the past many years, because kids want to escape from what they did and want to forget about it. So they go crazy and go to India and to South America and, and just to run away in many ways. So both of them, Iran went to India and David to South America. And when David came back, he went to university to study philosophy of education and he was doing his master's and then he was called to go to reserves and he really didn't want to go because he would have to for the first time since leaving, finishing his army service. He, he always did reserves up in the north, you know, where it was like having fun more or less to go away with your army mates but here he would have to serve in the occupied territories. And he really was torn. And he came to see me and he said, look, what will I do? If I don't go, what happens to my students? He was teaching philosophy to kids who were gonna be inducted into the army. And if I don't go, what happens to my soldiers? He was the officer. And if I do go, I'll treat people with dignity and so will all my soldiers. You don't know who the person is behind the gun. You may think you do, but you actually don't. And I was actually full of a sense of dread. I don't know, I just... It was awful. But he went, and then he called me on the Saturday and said they were in this terrible place, which was like being sitting ducks. And he said, bye, I love you. And I just... Got up and started to clean my house in a frenzy I never clean I'm a terrible housewife and I just felt this need it's almost like when you're going to have a baby you know um, birds and dogs and everyone they make nests and they clean up around them and all of that that's the sort of sense that I had and I woke up the next morning at I don't know, very early in the morning. And I just got up and went to my office, which was crazy, like half past six in the morning. It was if I didn't want to hear any news. And I just had this terrible feeling all the time. And of course, when the knock on the door happened, they didn't have to tell me that David had been killed by a Palestinian sniper. And apparently one of the first things that I said is you may not kill anybody in the name of my child. And I don't know, I mean I don't even know that I said that. But I was told that that's what I said. And then um, that started that whole cycle with Yitzhak Frankenthal. And there were many, many articles in the paper. And I started to travel all over the world and thought I was really very important. And one night I came home and there was another knock on my door, and I opened the door, and there were three soldiers. And when you see three soldiers only mean one thing, so I slammed the door in their face, and they kept knocking and knocking and knocking, and eventually I opened the door, and they said, we came to tell you that we caught the man who killed David. Now, they thought I would be delighted and would have a sense of revenge and would be leaping around my lounge with joy. But it was the most difficult thing that I could hear because now there's a face. You see, it was like when there was no face, I was going around the world talking about reconciliation and talking about peace and reading bad poetry and things like that. But here suddenly I'm faced with the reality of a person who actually killed my child. Now, do I mean all the things I've been saying or is this just some way You know, am I honest? This became a very difficult, difficult part in my life. I didn't sleep for many, many months. And then I wrote a letter to the family of the man who killed David and two Palestinians from our group delivered the letter. And in the letter, I told them about the parent circle by which time I'd already joined and was very active. And it sort of took over my life anyway. And I told them about David. And I told them that it was very important that we should meet. We owed that to our children and grandchildren. And of course, they were very shocked to get this letter, as you can imagine. And I, in my great wisdom and patience, imagined that I would get a letter back, like, you know, the next morning, I'm at my post box. But of course, there's no such thing as instant reconciliation. And it may never happen and I waited something like three years and but the extraordinary thing was that the minute I wrote the letter I gave up being a victim of the circumstance here came my survivor and I, I was completely free in a way because my life is no longer contingent on what I decided to do it took three years I got a letter back saying that I'm crazy. They didn't have to tell me that, I knew that already. And that he killed 10 people to free Palestine. But you see, I knew that when he was a very small child, he saw his uncle violently killed by the Israeli army. And he also lost, well, one uncle disappeared in the second uprising and one was killed. I think he went on the path of revenge He wasn't affiliated to any political party. He chose to go into the Fatah jail because in the jails Fatah and Hamas are separated. He chose that jail and became a folk hero. You know, he killed 10 people and they made a film about him and a book about him. But I was kind of released from this whole situation. And we went back to South Africa. Two filmmakers came to talk to me and we made a film. We wanted to look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to see how perpetrators and victims felt about the evidence that they gave at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and also to learn lessons for Israel and Palestine, even though it's not the same culture, it's not the same religion, it's different. And I wanted to explore the meaning of forgiving. I would spoken to priests and rabbis and imams and nobody really came up with anything that was meaningful for me. That said, I meant for me. I didn't mean for anybody else. Many, many people come to forgiving through religion. And sometimes I almost wish that I'd had that, that I could forgive because I had to, but I didn't. And I'd met a South African white woman called Jin Foree. I knew that she'd gone to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and said to the men who killed her daughter, I forgive you. And I wanted to know what she meant by the word, I forgive you. And so I went to meet her. And of course, we became sisters immediately. Just by the way, all bereaved mothers are immediate sisters without a bridge. I found that with the black mothers here in America and the mothers of the police officers who'd lost children and the mothers in South Africa. We all share the same pain. I went to meet Jim, and I asked her, what did you mean when you said you forgive? And she said, forgiving for me is giving up your just right to revenge. That was very meaningful for me, but also because I understood why. You see, this man didn't kill David because he was David. He killed his uniform. If he'd known David, he could never have done that, I assure you. That's a hard thing to admit, by the way, and many other parents would be very angry to hear me say something like that. But if we are to find a way to reconcile, we also have to find a way to tell each other the truth, or our truth, I don't know, you know, truth is something selective in many ways. I then met the man who actually sent the people to kill her daughter. She was white Afrikaans. And of course, if you give a label for that, that would mean she probably was pro-apartheid, which she wasn't at all. You know, we love giving labels to people. And I met the man who sent the people to kill her daughter. And he said, by her forgiving me, she released me from the prison of my inhumanity. For me, that was the most incredible thing to say. And I came back to Israel, and I decided it was time to meet with Zaya, but everything's in the way, blah, blah. I found a million excuses. We don't have a mediator. We don't need permission from the police, the Minister of Justice, you name it, I found another excuse. And then one weekend, I decided that's enough. You know, I'm going to meet the Minister of Justice. And I went to the ministry and they gave me permission to go into the jail and I asked for Basama Ramin, who's a member of our group, who lost his daughter and had spent seven years in jail and was one of the founders of Combatants for Peace. I wanted him to be the mediator. No, I don't like the word mediator, the go-between. You see, when there's a mediator, there's a compromise. And I'm not talking about that. I wanted him to be the go-between because he had the culture, he spoke the language. Actually, one of the most famous restorative justice people in America wanted to be the go-between, but I didn't want him because he didn't understand the culture. He didn't speak the language. How could he transfer the thoughts and ideas? And how would he understand the language and what it is to be in jail for so many years? We got permission and then we were waiting for the police, and then we had elections. And you know, in Israel, by the way, lately we seem to be having a lot of elections, so there's always a little bit of hope somewhere. And we got a new Minister of Justice, who I call the Minister of Just Us, and so that took care of that. But all is fine, you know, I'm not, it's not so pressing for me anymore. I really am very much at peace with myself now.
0: Robbie, how would you encourage those of us who feel so much despair over the conflict?
1: Firstly, we can't give up hope. I mean, you know, the situation in Israel and Palestine, I think that we are, as an organization, one of the rays of light and hope that still exists. And I can't imagine looking at my grandchildren and thinking that I am giving up, never. And there are many, many people who agree with us, but do nothing, which is the same as here. And also do not include people in the conversation that they don't agree with. If you don't include people in the conversation, and this applies very much here as well, the people that you don't agree with and you think you are superior to, they are going to become more radical. And so it's terribly comfortable to sit and talk to the people who agree with you. And it's very nice that they all come and hug you and tell you how wonderful you are. But on the other hand, if you cannot make an emotional breakthrough in the heart of somebody who doesn't agree with you, then you must look at yourself to see where your prejudice is. Why can't you see their humanity? Why can't you understand their pain? And that's an exercise. It's not an easy thing, because for me personally, I've got a tongue like a viper. If I want to wipe you out, I can probably do that in two minutes. But I learned over the years that this doesn't help at all. All you do is close people down and they will never, you will never reach their heart or their mind. And so you have to give dignity and you have to include them. And it's the way that you talk to them. And if you want me to give you an example, I surely can. If you want to hear that example,
0: join us next week for more from Robbie Damlin. Thank you so much for listening to Undaunted. If you would like to help support our podcast, you can do so by becoming a patron. Just go to our website where you can see the link, telosgroup.org. Also, another way that you can help is by rating us on iTunes, as well as sharing these podcasts on social media and with your friends. I'm David Gunger. Thanks for joining us. I hope that you'll stay curious.
2: Shanti. Shanti.